2: Join Planet Fitness for just one dollar down and
3: ten dollars a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May tenth. See Home Club for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off: U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Faceoff wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. The hosts of Monster Talk, myself, Blake Smith, Ben Radford, and Dr. Karen Stolzno, work to bring you interesting interviews that examine the science behind monsters. Today's episode is all about ethnobiology a science with remarkable parallels to cryptozoology. Ethnobiology uses folklore to find real animals. Isn't that what cryptozoologists want to do? In this episode, we interview Professor Tony Russell of the University of Calgary on ethnobiology, monsters, and geckos. It's
3: actually
0: quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man.
3: Mr. Dog.
2: So when we were at Tam Eight, the amazing meeting, the uh, large skeptics gathering sponsored by the James Randy Organization, the James Randy is it Federal Association of Skeptical? Educational?
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> federal?
2: <laughs> CIA operative? Yeah. Yeah, I think they. they, they uh,
3: we're stalking horses, aren't we?
2: We are stalking horses, the worst kind.
3: Is it? Better kind? <laughs> <Is>
2: that, uh, <laughs> yeah, stalking centaurs are better, actually.
3: For us. Right,
2: yeah. exactly. So.
3: Minotaurs or something. Ooh, minotaurs
2: yeah. are cool. Yeah. Totally off topic, but I, I had this idea for a short film where a guy's working late in the office and uh, basically he hears a noise. And it's the kind of thing where you get a long shot of the office and you can see all the different cubicles and re- essentially they form a, a, a labyrinth. And what's happening is there's an office minotaur in the labyrinth with him. And so he's you know got to try to fight and escape the labyrinth uh without being killed by the minotaur
1: so it sounds like uh, troll 3 or something no, no i
2: was just a short film I mean, the whole thing you know like a two or 3 minute thing of you know him fighting a minotaur at the office would,
1: would this all be stop motion or live action or what
2: oh it would be live action with you know like a normal looking uh, office worker and a big muscular sweaty sexy minotaur man
3: <laughs> sexy that'll keep them working
2: your sisters music and uh, disco lights it'll be awesome It'll be
1: get somebody from uh, from Office Space. <laughs> somebody bitch him at a stapler.
2: Okay, I don't know why it just gay turned gay, gay on me, but okay. Uh, <laughs> you, just, you just turned gay. Just turned, okay. It just now it turned. Just anyway, uh, so yeah, anyway, the amazing sorry, meeting eight we,
3: we,
2: uh, sponsored yeah, by the so. James Randy Educational Foundation. <laughs> when we were all
3: that's where we that were. One yeah. Time
2: when we were all together. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually only the second time. I,
3: that's the second time. I, the second
2: yeah. time, So. Um, A guy named Daniel Arndt, I think that's how you pronounce his name, D-A-R-N-D-T, approached us in the hallway and suggested that we talk to Dr. Tony Russell, uh, who's an ethnobiologist from Canada. And he said that um, since cryptozoology and ethnobiology have much in common, uh, that we should talk to Dr. Russell because he had actually successfully used folklore to track down a new species of animal. Um, in this case, uh, a, a gecko. So I've, it took a while, but I finally managed to get all of our schedules aligned so we could actually talk to Dr. Russell tonight. So I'm kind of excited. So Excellent. Uh,
3: yeah, this is sort of the inverse of how it usually happens. It is
2: true. It is true. So I, I'm, we've got several suggestions for guests that have come in lately. Um, so hopefully we'll get to line some of those up. I like that kind of feedback. It's nice. Oh, by the way, a lot of good feedback from the, uh, the Minnesota Iceman episode.
3: Yeah, okay. I've heard several people say that this is yeah. their favorite episode Yeah, I've episode had at least four
2: different people contact me and tell me that, exactly.
3: I wonder what it is. Is it the topic or is it I think it's Minnesota. Interaction or you, Minnesota?
2: You like Minnesota. It's very nice.
1: <laughs> I think it's Matt the Tube. Anytime you've got Matt the Tube on, you know, how can you go wrong?
2: It's winter. It's got an Iceman. It's very nice.
3: <laughs> I did have someone from Minnesota say that he'd never heard of the Iceman.
2: man. Really?
3: But I think he's just a young'un, and this is, uh, if the exhibit was touring during the 60s, then it's just a bit before his time.
1: I, I saw a couple of them. Was uh, The ones that I saw were just uh, mostly enjoying the topic, uh, just because it was sort of a, you know, it, it's a topic that doesn't, that at first glance isn't necessarily about monsters, and then you sort of realize mm-hmm. it actually ties in very well.
3: I think the feedback I'd received was more that it was just an overall good episode, so not necessarily the topic or even the guests. They just liked the whole Thing as a package.
2: Yeah, I, the, I just got sort of these generalistic. The, that was my favorite episode so far. Great work. So,
3: yay. Yeah, me too.
2: And I'm glad Actually, to, yeah, you,
3: whatever. That's the
2: kind of feedback we need, though. If, if, you, if you don't like episodes or do, we'd like to know that. And so, uh, uh, you can contact us in a lot of ways if you're listening to the show
3: mental telepathy. Uh,
2: telepathy would be one. Um, uh, a Ouija board would be another. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, We're not dead yet.
2: You don't have to be dead to be use those lines, do you? I, I've, I've been using them for some time without...
3: I think you need to be a spirit. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think you can contact the living through Ouija boards.
1: Are you sure? That's the kind
3: of lines you're talking about. Yes? Ben?
1: Yes. Yes. <laughs>
3: Comments? <laughs> uh,
1: Ouija Comments? boards? I was, I, are they I only used for contacting just... the dead? Um, that's my understanding. What about demons?
2: Because uh, I was pretty sure you could contact demons, and demons aren't dead, are they?
1: Well, uh, d- 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 dead in term. well, uh, I think they would probably be undead. I mean, as far as, uh, I don't know that, I, I've never heard of a demon dying, if, if that's what you right, mean. Right, no, no. I mean, they just I, I've, never, I've never opened up the Wall Street Journal or, or the New York Times and said, you know, Beelzebub, a uh, demon from you know ancient <laughs> Greece, has now died. <laughs> so I'm guessing that they don't really die. No, they don't so, die, and they and get that-
2: banished. You can banish them from the plane.
1: Right. For, for, oh well. Right. Well, if you're going back to like D and D mythology, certainly.
2: Yeah, and that's. that's uh,
1: I thought. I, I thought you meant the real world, Blake. Well, on.
2: I think it's the same idea. You, it's just uh, you can you can cast them out, and then they have to go somewhere else. Uh, I think you know you put them in a pig or a herd of pigs, or. I well, thought yeah, they
3: were still dead somehow. Like uh, angels are no longer living, and they're no, the no, no. The angels were ever living
2: because like cause they don't have belly buttons. <laughs> They were just created. right? It, it, the, the point is, don't use a Ouija board to contact us. It's the wrong thing to do.
1: Right, right.
3: That, but you suggested I, mean, I know,
2: and I, I was wrong, clearly. I was. <laughs> so I'm going to stop listening to my Ouija board, because apparently that's not how the listeners are getting back with us. But what you can okay, do same. is you can go to Skeptic Forum, which, uh, which is a link off of the uh, skeptic.com website, and you can go to... Um, the James Randi boards that we have a message thread there, and we can you can mm-hmm. go to the Skeptics Guide to the Universe and are other media. There's a, a place there. You can go to Facebook. We also have a yeah.
1: fa- yes, we also have a Facebook. We have a Facebook
2: page. fan page. I, I put stuff on there. So and,
1: okay, I, I do.
2: So every I
3: I like things on there, and
2: you can find us uh, two of us on Twitter. I'm uh, Dr. Atlantis on Twitter, just one word, and then Karen and Karen
3: Karen Stoltzman. That's right, mm-hmm.
1: and I I'm at uh, Ben. There's a fake talk- Ben. Yeah, I think someone someone set that up for me as a joke. Hilarious. So, yeah, sort of like the uh, sort of like the the uh, Ouija board thing. Um, speaking of read of of listener complaints, if people have any complaints about Blake's puns, I do encourage our readers to uh, our listeners to um, contact to Ben and... Radford. I've
3: got a complaint?
1: <laughs> I, I, you've never had a complaint about Blake's puns?
3: I have a complaint. I
1: said. Oh, you have a complaint? <laughs> oh, oh well. I
3: have a complaint? Yes. We'll, we'll talk about it later. Monster
1: dog.
2: And now we welcome Dr. Tony Russell from the University of Calgary, Alberta. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about your work in general, just sort of give us an overview of what kind of work you do with geckos?
0: Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I'm a, an evolutionary biologist, so uh, geckos are a very widespread group around the world, and um, one of the amazing things that they do is this pattern of adhesion. They can stick to smooth surfaces and so on. So I've been interested in the evolutionary uh, aspects of that system and then also my field work is involved in performance characteristics of geckos in their real world so a lot of people are interested in how geckos uh, how we can adapt uh, gecko essentially uh, biotechnology to human uh, endeavors, but most people study these things in a laboratory situation. So I actually go out to the field and measure performance attributes of real geckos in where they really live rather than climbing up bits of glass in the laboratory and so trying to sort of map out the physical uh, characteristics of the environment and how that limits how they function.
3: Well, a former student had suggested you as a guest for our show based on your work in ethnobiology. And we've spoken about ethnobiology before on the show, but could you remind our listeners what ethnobiology is?
0: Okay, well, ethnobiology is really uh, the sort of knowledge of the living world that... Uh, I guess people in in, in general situations but normally in uh, a less developed area would have about the the knowledge of the flora and fauna that uh, exist in their immediate vicinity and their ability to both subdivide that and then understand aspects of their biology probably in a a less formally scientific way but certainly having some great insights into uh, biodiversity from a, a more naturalistic perspective.
1: I was going to ask um, you, part of our show and the the whole monster theme, we we cover a wide variety of both uh, known uh, existing monsters and, you know, mythical and and possibly mythical monsters. And uh, oftentimes believers in Bigfoot and lake monsters point to historical examples of sort of folklore turned fact, Um, you know, early stories of the giant panda in China and. Gorillas right. in, in Africa to support the claims that you know that there's still uh, Loch Ness is, is still has a monster in it or a Bigfoot. What's your what's your take on that?
0: Well, my take on that is that I'm sort of uh, curiously skeptical. So, I mean, as a biologist, the first thing I have to do with regard to these sorts of reports is to look at feasibility in terms of how we think organisms are built and the sort of limitations to that. So um, Uh, I'll give you an example from the sort of Loch Ness situation. I've had quite a bit of dealings over recent years with this beast that's supposed to exist um, between uh, mainland British Columbia and Vancouver Island, that is Cadborosaurus. So uh, that was basically proclaimed a few years ago to be a living plesiosaur, and there were uh, reports of specimens and so on and at least there is one photograph of something rather unusual that was taken from a place uh, sort of mid-Vancouver island called Naden Harbor in the 1930s um, and essentially my my take on all of these things is that We have to be able to reject all the ideas about what we know about before we lurch to an explanation about something we don't know about. I'm I'm willing to admit and and believe that there are things out there that we don't know, but I think there's also a tendency to allow for essentially unfeasible biological ideas to, to rule this desire to want to... Have these other things to be out there. So if I look at this cabrasaurus example, um, there were reports of, of you know correlating the uh, the idea with eyewitness reports, and then what this animal would be able to do. And I tried to analyze that from from the known morphology as it was reconstructed by the authors and how this might work. So swimming at a surface with a humped back on a, a serpentine type body, looking at the sort of the, the relationship of, of drag to thrust that could occur there and the speeds that are being claimed, uh, the pattern of motion and, and how that would be brought about. And a lot of these things, if it, if it is a vertebrate, we don't know of those characteristics in living vertebrates. So Things are possible, but you tend to stretch out the the realms of feasibility once you suspend that anchorage in um, an understanding of what we now know. So it's a bit like looking at the fossil record. There are odd things in the fossil record that, we really don't have modern analogs of, and so we're a little more stumped in terms of how to explain what those things do. But most of the fossil record resembles pretty much the design patterns that we have uh, now. So I think we need to sort of exhaust those possibilities first, and then once we've got rid of those, we're left with the improbable once we've got rid of the, of the possible.
2: Was well put. So from a, from a more practical perspective, how does ethnobiology and that sort of interface with um, cultural lore affect your uh, regular research?
0: Well, I, I, think it, I think it affects it quite well. And I, I, I mean, I'll give you an example of something that I worked on a few years ago, um, which is much less spectacular, but I think really important. So I think when we get into these areas of cryptozoology and, and cryptozoology and ethnobiology are not necessarily the same thing. But when, when we tend to get into these areas of of monsters, for example, or, or sort of these these rather uh, exotic organisms, then then we're we're really sort of mixing aspects of of what we want to believe and what we actually observe but with smaller things where there's not such a vested interest in these things being fantastic then i think that ethnobiology plays a really important role so um some years ago we uh, a specimen notification of a specimen was sent to me that had been in a museum in Marseille since in france since about um, 1803, and it basically was on display for a while, and it was put in a plastic bag and put in a file cabinet. This happened to be a rather large lizard. Okay, so um, I finally got access, first of all, to images of this and to x-rays, and it worked out that this was a, was a gecko. So I worked with geckos. This was much, much bigger than any gecko that we know about. So it was essentially a, a mounted skin. It was a, a, a stuffed skin that was shellacked. So, got hold of this skin and, and radiographed it, and there were actually bones in there. So, the first thing I could tell was this animal was not some stretched out skin. The skull, the limb bones were in proportion to the body size. And it was, in fact, you know, like three times bigger than, than any known gecko. So, we didn't know where it had come from. But knowing something about the anatomy of uh, the specimen, I could actually narrow it down to the fact that it could only have come from in terms of modern, um, patterns of distribution, either New Caledonia or New Zealand, because that's the only place where things with that morphology live now. So then we started to investigate what this could possibly be, and we found that in Ma- Maori folklore, there was a thing called the kawakaoia, which had particular attributes. It had uh, a sort of striped body with particular sorts of patterns. It had a particular size. The habitat was described. But the folkloric explanations have been dismissed as essentially poor descriptions of the tuatara, which is this sort of iconic living fossil that lives in New Zealand. And in fact, those ethnobiological... Descriptions, which are mainly in sort of sociological rather than biological literature, were extremely accurate, and they were describing this real animal, which everybody had basically dismissed as impossible. And there it was. We had a specimen of this, and and that showed that, you know, for a gecko, this is a monster. It's not a monster by sort of Loch Ness standards, but nonetheless, something that we would have thought would have been improbable, but it was there, and essentially a lot of its identity tied right back into Maori folklore and there are carvings of this thing and everybody just thought that it was imaginary
2: that animal is about three times larger than the, most of the geckos you'd seen Did they have the same sort of adhesive
0: properties yeah it's got it's got adhesive pads on it so it sort of pushes our uh, our concept of how that system might work and the sort of scaling that might be there to support a body weight of that size but if i take that specimen I can hold it against my body. The head is at my shoulder, and essentially the the vent where the tail starts is at my waist. I mean, it's really huge.
3: I was wondering, what kind of folkloric resources do you use?
0: Uh, well, uh, it, it depends. So I, I mean, I, I try to look at... Um, you know, accounts that, that early settlers, early European settlers will have in certain places. So what, what are they writing about and what are the things that they are being told? I mean, I think as the world shrinks and as more people get to more places, um, they, they're certainly... Um, biological wisdom out there, but I think the environment has changed as well. and There, there are things that um, I think are in the older literature that are very intriguing about reports that the first Europeans or whatever to get to these places were told and then to look to see, okay, what if that looks actually feasible uh, and what if it seems to be more fantastic?
1: Mm. That that's a uh, great lead into my question, which is, uh, what kind of things guide you to determine whether the folklore is worth following up on? I mean, if you if you're just hearing a story, there's some local legend or lore about some monster. Uh, it right. could be completely fictional. It could be in a, a, it could be based on an eyewitness account. It could be total BS. So how do you how do you right, sort right. Of determine what's what and what to follow up on?
0: Absolutely. So that's what I say. As being being a, a scientist, I mean, certainly. One thing that, that scientists are trained in is being skeptical. I mean, they can't agree on very many things together, but they can all agree that we're all skeptical. Okay, so, so in that regard, we really need hard evidence. So it's hard enough to get funds to do research where you know where to go for things. So, so basically, following up on many of these things becomes difficult because... Um, it's it's sort of like potentially a, a wild goose chase much of the time, so I, I think that one. I mean, I visited the the field sites in New Zealand where this uh, this gecko is is um, likely to live, and, and I've done some work there. I, I wasn't successful in finding a living specimen, but I think really the important thing is to encourage local people to keep. to to remain vigilant where you think something is is possible and to uh, then keep communication going. So a lot of these things are going to be tough to find. Um, and, of course, negative evidence is really difficult to deal with. So how many times do you have to not find something before you decide that it really isn't there as opposed mm-hmm. to you just haven't found it yet?
2: You can do that a lot uh, based on some of the cryptozoology researchers out there. Uh, yes. <laughs> do, you ever hear, no. do you ever hear tantalizing leads that turn out to be untrue or have things that have captured your interest but haven't panned out so far you'd like to talk about?
0: Well, I think, you know, I I spent some time uh, earlier in my career living in in Lesotho in southern Africa, so a a country, a landlocked country, surrounded by uh, South Africa. And I was interested in trying to talk to local people there about the folklore of of their reptiles. And there are certain things there that are... Um, very intriguing, but also by, by talking to those people and recognizing their history, I was also able to tease apart how some of this folklore comes into being. So uh, I'll give you an example. I was sitting by the side of the road one day, and uh, I was holding a couple of small lizards in my hand. These are agamas, or so rock-dwelling lizards that are local to that area. And a local wandered by and was just absolutely uh, astounded, sort of shocked that I was holding these things. So I asked my uh, local colleague there what the problem was. And he said, well, people believe that if this animal bites you, you'll laugh until you die. So I thought, okay, well, this is, this is rather odd. You know, where where could such an idea have come from? You know, this is patently not true. I mean, they'll, they'll bite you. They won't even draw blood. They're, they're not that powerful. So but, did you but test it? Something, well, I, I, of course, I let it bite me. Absolutely. And I'm still here. Um, <laughs> okay, I, just,
1: I just wanted to make sure.
0: Yeah, yeah right. Absolutely. Um, so... I, I, and there were a number of other sort of odd folkloric uh, questions sort of suggestions about the local reptiles. but then, if you start to investigate the history of the local people, the Basuto as a people have only been in what is now Lesotho since about eighteen forty so they were lowland people, part of the Bantu tribes, and there were a lot of tribal wars going on and in the 1840s they essentially to escape conflict, moved up into the mountains so I think probably what happened was that you've got a lot of mothers there with kids, and you don't know what the local fauna is doing. So you tell your kid, look, if you touch that, something bad is going to happen to you. And the kids now basically take that to heart. And when they grow up and become parents, they tell their kids, and nobody's really ever witnessed this, but everybody knows it. And so you get some of these properties being, I think, Um, imposed by uh, essentially the mobility of people and the the desire to protect yourself from the unknown by imposing uh, properties on on organisms just to, to be on the safe side. Uh, and So, you know, I, I was sort of intrigued by that process and about how one might go searching for this lizard that, that is going to bite you and you'll laugh until you die. So is this really out there or is this something that the locals believe and is there something else that would explain why that may be the case? So that's a sort of an example of ethnobiology which is sort of locally protective but not necessarily grounded in sound biology.
3: I was just going to ask if you think that social conditioning is the basis for most folklore.
0: Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a folklorist. I, I wouldn't like to sort of uh, expand out to, uh, into cavalier fashion in that regard. But I think, you know, if we think about ourselves growing up, I mean, how many of us have really had a bad experience with a spider? But we're all scared of them, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we, you know, we have some... Uh, I mean, partly it's, it's appearance, but partly it's something that I think is inculcated in us. We, we know not to touch these things because somebody else has told us to do so. And we should fear these things. But there are very few people around who've really said, yeah, I've had a really bad experience with, you know, it's not like we're living in, in situations where there are a lot of highly venomous. Uh, spiders or whatever. We just generally have a repulsion to certain of these things. And I think part of it is potentially natural by experience, but I think a lot of it is reinforced by what we're told and, and why we tend to avoid these things because they become... You know, we tend to think we don't have societal taboos, but I think we do. And I think they're not really very much different from other societies. They just, we we live in a more insulated environment, but we still carry these beliefs.
1: Rod, a great question. Um, It seems to me that many movie monsters have reptilian features, you know, tails and claws and scales and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. And do, do you think there's something inherently scary or terrifying about reptiles to us humans?
0: I, I think that there's something, yes, I, I mean, you know, they're not, certainly not, they don't look soft and cuddly like mammals, right? So, I mean, you know, you might make a kid's toy out of a baby lion. Uh, I, I don't know that you sort of introduce your kid to a lion, but you might have m- much more, uh, a harder time, I think, selling, uh, you know, an iguana, although you, you can you can make them look cuter. But I think that their, their general appearance does, I think, you know, they're sort of potentially cold to the touch, which I think is something that is a little bit alien to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a different feel about them. I mean, for things that, you know, snakes don't blink their eyes. This is like a an odd uh, situation. They, they tend to go about life in a different way. So I think there are some body forms that tend to, I, I think, sort of strike us as being a little less comfortable than others and and certainly a combination of body form and body covering. So people tend to be I think rather tactile and Mm -hmm. they touch something and it's not what they're familiar with and so it uh, it sort of engenders a a feeling of, of I don't know revulsion or whatever. This is this is unfamiliar and and sort of somewhat unpleasant.
1: And yet, you picked geckos to to study on and, and research. Why did you pick that? what drew you to that?
0: Well, I mean, I I was interested uh, from from you know for, uh, as a reasonably small kid with with lizards and lizard body form. I mean, I, I take them to be very elegant animals. I mean, I I. I you know, just to me it's it's my own eye. I mean I look at a lizard and I, I see um elegance there. I mean I guess people would see probably more elegance in something like uh, a Lacerta than they would in a in, in a gecko, but but nonetheless. Uh I mean I was I was attracted to them because I, I think they do things in interesting ways. Um they obey different sorts of rules and um I, I think they force us to look at life in, in a different way than, you know, we're sort of very mammal-centric in the way that we look at things, and we tend to judge everything by a sort of mammalian standard, and I, I, I think I'm sort of drawn to alternate solutions that, um, you know, are, are neither better nor worse, but just different ways of doing things and, and, uh, and force us, I think, to try to understand the world in a slightly different way.
2: They just had a big um, gecko exhibit at, at Fernbank Science Center here, here in Atlanta. And I, right. I took my family down to look at it, and there was some, I think there were maybe 25 or 30 different species they had on exhibit, and some really nice videos about trying to reproduce the gecko's adhesion properties. Would you like to talk about that and some of the other things that make geckos special or different from just your average run-of-the-mill lizard?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, that's one of the things that we, we tend to, a lot of things we look at with animals, it's sort of a gee whiz factor, right? So you see, uh, a gecko sticking on a, on a pane of glass, and this is like, how could, how is this possible? And then you realize this animal has no secretions, it has no glands that are doing this sort of thing. So this, this attracts us to trying to mimic that, that pattern, because if we could, You know, just a a very simple uh, sort of extrapolation from that. If we could close wounds, for example, or if we could um, hang pictures on the wall and move them at will and put them somewhere else, there's no mark, there's no little hole to fill in, there's no blue tack to clean up. These sorts of things become uh, attractive because, uh, you know, a gecko can hang there and essentially release with, with no trace of it ever having been there. So there's been a, a great deal of interest in how geckos do this for probably 200 years. So this is one of these areas where it takes technology a long time to catch up with our ideas. So the sorts of things that are being done now, these sort of nanotechnological approaches and the understanding of, of the very strange way geckos bring this about, Um, have actually been there as theoretical explanations since about 1902, but only since about 2000 have we actually had the technology to start to investigate that and find out whether it's really the case or just a theory. So now we've got that that ability to actually test those ideas and get real measurements. We can now carry that forward to mechanisms where we can try to actually mimic that. Uh, And so I would say You know, if you look at adhesion in geckos, there are two problems, one of which we're very interested in, the other of which has become a much more pressing problem once we find out that what we're interested in is only half the story. So sticking something to something else is one issue. Getting it off is something else. So um, what geckos have done with these little microscopic hair-like structures on the underside of their toes is to turn a very rigid material, so we were talking earlier about scales, which are sort of hard and unyielding, into uh, what is called a pressure-sensitive adhesive. So it's become so soft that it can actually press into a surface and make incredibly close contact. So the pressure-sensitive adhesive that we're used to in our everyday life, I guess we've Two examples of that, so you're walking down the street, you step on a piece of gum on the sidewalk, that's a pressure sensitive adhesive. Now you lift your foot up and this thing stretches out and it doesn't let go. Um, The other example would be scotch tape. So you stick it to a surface and you press down on it and it's nicely stuck, but now getting it off the surface um, is much more difficult. So what geckos have done is to invent a system which sticks and sticks very firmly and then releases without any uh, struggle or uh, or difficulty. So when we're trying to mimic these systems, getting something stuck onto a surface is one part of the problem. How do we develop these little um, fibrils? So people are using all sorts of... um, uh, nanotechnological mechanisms to, to extrude very fine fibrils, carbon fibers and so on at very small size. Um, the trick is getting them on and then get, getting them off again and not damaging them and not having them wear out. So you know, geckos have been doing this for probably 150 million years. We're sort of newcomers to this so uh, reproducing their their biotechnology which they've learned over the years through trial and error with the environment is a a steep learning curve.
2: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?
0: Like, are you a fist pumper?
2: alien species that are Sasquatch.
1: Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a
2: premise that every path is right.
0: That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or
1: whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> I-
0: so, join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Chinwagpod and Wagon.
3: Uh, you mentioned researching Caddy's morphology earlier. Have you done similar analysis for other marine monsters?
0: Uh, well, I've sort of toyed with it. I've had students who've been working on plesiosaurs and so on, so we've tried to look at some aspects of what have been said about Nessie and so on, uh, just in terms of not, not so much the, the morphology because, you know, I think we probably don't have as much, uh, uh sort of advocated evidence of what the real structure of Nessie is but we certainly have implications of the environment in which it lives. So we would have to extrapolate there about the type of organism it is. Now when you're dealing with a group that you think is totally extinct, of course we have less Direct evidence of 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 what may have gone on. So basically, as paleontologists, people have to infer from modern biology about what the biology of related extinct organisms may have been. And and of course, we've got some reasonable way of doing that. But of course, we 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 don't necessarily have to apply exactly the same rules. And so we, you know, if, if for example, if we're looking at bone strength, I mean, we. There's there's lots of interest in how hard could Tyrannosaurus bite, for example. Uh, And sort of some of the uh, underlying assumptions we have to make is that essentially the mechanical properties of bone in Tyrannosaurus were identical more or less to the mechanical properties of bone that we see in living animals. I mean, we have some reasonable way of assessing that, but we can't know absolutely that that's the case. And in the same way, we can't know absolutely the sort of biological and physiological parameters of things like plesiosaurs, for example, um, by extrapolating back from uh, from living animals. So we, we've got some reasonable assumptions there. So if we can take those sorts of measures, then we can ask things like dietary. Um, uh sort of resources for something like uh, the loch ness monster what what do we think it's eating where would it get those resources from how could it reproduce in in a landlocked situation what sort of things are liable to be going on there so we we can pose some sort of biological feasibility studies but of course the uh, the game thing of that is well why do these things have to obey uh, the uh, the, thing, you know, the rules of things that we know about now? And I guess they don't, but from my mind, we have to eliminate those possibilities first of all.
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, a lot of times when, when you talk to people who believe in these monsters, uh, they, they'll sort of go to great lengths to explain why it is that they don't necessarily obey biological uh, laws, you know, in terms of, if you're, if you're looking at, right. um, you yeah. Know, why,
0: why, you yeah, so, so I mean, no. uh, one of the other things that we've sort of investigated in the past is this, um, you know, a smaller animal, but this thing called the Suchinoko, which is a, a snake that's reputed to live in Japan and has certain strange properties, but the reports of it in terms of things like body mass, for example, um, make no sense in terms of what we know about living organisms. I mean, you and I weigh about, you know, on average, the same or a little less than water in terms of our body mass. That's why we don't sink when we go into a swimming pool. But, but some of these reports, you know, if you try and uh, correlate body size with body mass, okay, this thing's got seven times the density of Anything we know about that's alive now, how is that feasible? And that, that I think, mm-hmm. then sort of engenders some feeling of, of skepticism. Yes, we can press, we can extend the boundaries a little, but this sort of goes way beyond what we know about living material in general.
1: i recently read a screenplay about uh, extinct giant monitor lizards called Megalania. Have you studied those?
0: Right, yeah, well, I, I know about them. I haven't studied them yet.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about those?
0: Well, these were um, you know, large monitor lizards, so varanid lizards that lived in Australia in up to fairly recent times. So they're they're sort of they've been gone in not European historical times, but I think that they're they were around, uh, you know, in the the great megafaunal extinction in Australia. These were were still around. So large land predators. So here you see an example of essentially a continent which, which at the time had relatively few large mammalian predators and so other things, so it's a bit like the Komodo dragon but, but it's, it's a lot bigger. Um, but you know in a way that's not really surprising because we have really good evidence of things like mosasaurs which are large marine monitor lizards essentially. So, so large body size in itself um, you know, it, it's possible within um, you know certain ecological and environmental circumstances. Being big is not the same as being bizarre. So, so I think you know one has to factor out those two things. So there are certainly limits on the body size of certain sorts of animals. So terrestrial mammals have a sort of real limit in in terms of how big they can be because of the Uh, the metabolism that they run, so you can't, uh, uh, beyond a certain size, if you look at the relationship between metabolic rate and body size in mammals, it declines, so mice and shrews are running at a much faster rate than elephants, but you start to extend that out much further, and you just cannot get enough fuel on a daily basis to keep that economy running, so there have got to be some limitations, if you're something like a monitor lizard, then you're not constrained in the same way by absolute limits on body size, you'll be constrained eventually but because you're, you're basically cold-blooded, you're poikilothermic, your dietary requirements and your overall physiologically, physiological activity are running at a different level. You may have a relatively higher body temperature because you're big, but that doesn't mean that your cellular machinery is necessarily running in the same way that a mammal cellular machinery does. So you can, you can overcome some of those size constraints. There are still going to be upper limits on, on what can occur, but I think being big as I say, being bizarre are not necessarily the same thing.
3: So you were talking about uh, the giant monitor lizards uh, and finding those in New Zealand, and it just got me thinking about the giant moa birds, which were uh, found in New Zealand. And I was just wondering if I'm Australian myself, if you can't tell, and I'm just wondering if there's any reason why these creatures are being found in the Antipodes, these giant creatures, is there anything to the area at all?
0: Well, part of it, I think, comes from, I mean, places like New Zealand, uh, I mean, you tend to get island giants, right? So you get certain things existing in places where the the structure of biological commun- communities is somewhat different. So uh, you would see the same sort of thing in the Galapagos, for example, or in Aldabra, which is a, a very small piece of land um, in, in the uh, the sort of north part of the Indian Ocean, that supports giant tortoises. So why do these things exist in these places? They really exist because the structure of the fauna overall is um, is slightly different. So you you tend not to have, for example, big mammalian predators. Uh, You have other things that tend to occupy specialist niches that are taken up by a more diverse fauna in other areas. So two things that sort of go along with this. One is um, the, the structure of, of, the, of the fauna on islands. The other is periods of isolation. So you get whole faunas and whole floras evolving together. Uh, we would see similar sorts of patterns in South America in its long period of isolation before it became became joined up with North America through the Panamanian Isthmus about three to four million years ago. So you've got all sorts of early mammals there that are uh, bizarre morphologies that really get um, out-competed in a way by subsequent invasions, but tend to persist in areas when you've got Um, long periods of isolation so larger things tend to persist in areas so small things will sort of raft from one place to another but I think big body size sort of limits your dispersal capabilities and and your um, I guess pioneering aspects on rather remote areas and so there's a number of factors that come into play as to why you tend to get like in in, um, South America you had large um, not just large birds like, like mowers, but large predatory birds that sort of fulfilled the role of large mammalian predators in the absence of those when, when that continent was isolated. So um, these large predatory birds sort of are doing things that we don't expect birds to do because the environment opens up opportunities for them.
2: You, know, you mentioned the uh, Suchinoko, uh snake. Right, and it reminds me. Of my grandmother used to tell me um, stories about a couple of uh, folkloric animals here in Georgia. The the, the glass snake was one, which right. which or a joint snake, excuse me, the joint snake, which would be okay. a snake that it, it behaves like a glass snake, which is a real thing. Uh, it right. breaks it breaks into pieces. So probably when I heard that, I thought, oh, it's probably a lizard. But the fantastic part was it was supposed to be able to gather its pieces back together and then travel away, right? Uh, right, right. Which would be a nice <laughs> trick, right? So, it
0: would, it would, absolutely. Uh, I think a regeneration biologists would be looking for exactly that sort of thing. But,
2: <laughs> right. So the other one was the hoop snake. And right. uh, and the uh, the Suchinoko also has that same uh, property uh, apparently right, it it, right. it grabs its tail and rolls like and a hoop. Rolls. Yes, so, and, absolutely. And, and that, which is similar to the uh, Ouroboros in uh, which goes back to ancient Egypt and Greece. Yeah, uh, yeah. So here's this here's my question. Um all of these uh images of a snake grabbing its tail and rolling in a hoop uh mm-hmm. you know clearly this is a story which exists in uh, all over the world, apparently. Uh, right, right. So, uh, in cryptozoology, I think we would generally say that's an animal that probably is real. Yet, I can't imagine uh, you're spending a lot of time looking for this animal. <laughs>
0: well, uh, okay. So, I, I would say, again, what, what you've got is, okay, an animal, several animals, uh, there's, there's a certain, uh, I, I guess, perceived pattern of behavior. Uh, so, certainly... Snakes, I say, I would say, would lend themselves to that sort of imagery first of all. So if you don't have legs and you want to move fast, so let's just—we're going to extrapolate here into into a a rather strange area. But if if I was an Olympic athlete, so if I was Usain Bolt or whatever, or, or probably a bad example, but if I was an Olympic runner who was running, say, 800 meters or 1500 meters. I'm going to compete with people in wheelchairs and I find that I'm going to lose hands down. So moving with wheels is really a much more effective way of moving than moving with legs because with wheels you don't have a deceleratory phase. So if you're running, every time you hit the ground you slow down then you accelerate again. Wheels you can keep rolling. So it's not surprising that people would see rapid motion as being something that would be enhanced by a wheel-like movement. Um, So you can roll a a stone down a hill or people roll cheeses down hills or whatever, sort of round wheel cheeses and so on. So you've got these sort of things that will happen. Now, there may be aspects of behavior that get observed that could be converted into a more... um, uniform expectation of what may take place. So you may see something tumbling, which then you would convert into an image of something rolling up and and doing this sort of thing. And yes, it's a universal sort of thing. It's the same as the milk snake. The milk snake is like a a universal idea, so snakes that will come into uh, a farmyard or whatever and attach to the udders of cattle and suck the milk out of them. I mean, this is a very widespread idea. It's probably rooted in some observational behavior, and then you extrapolate from there. But I, I would say again, if you were to go to the, the sort of hoop snake type idea, you would have to look at how snakes could possibly do this. So how would they get themselves up and running in that situation? So in order to perpetuate that behavior, you have to be able to bite your own tail and then flip yourself up so that you're now running uh, against the ground in this rotatory fashion. So you have to overcome a significant biological problem first of all. So I don't doubt that there are observations that are made that lead to these sorts of ideas but I think one has to have a mechanism of saying how do you start that behavior in the first place
2: I don't want to put words in your mouth but evolutionary probability is probably a better guideline when engaging in folkloric research than just how prevalent a story
0: is yeah I don't think you need evolution there because I I think even if everything is not evolved if it's just the way it is mechanics is what explains what can work so it doesn't matter that things how they have become the way they are but all organisms have limitations on their functional capabilities because of the way that they're built and we have to recognize that so Birds can fly, bats can fly, but other things can't. And why is that? There are certain structural attributes that make that possible. We might want other animals to be able to fly, but they can't do it. Dumbo really can't do this. No matter how much we want (laughs) Dumbo to be able to do that, it's not possible. It's possible in our imagination, and it's possible that we could think of a mechanism whereby that may work, But in in a physical sense, elephants can't do that, right? And so there's there's some aspect to say, okay, we don't have to worry about how elephants evolve to be elephants, but elephants are restricted in their behavior by their structure. There are things they can do. There are things they can't do because it's mechanically impossible. It's mechanically impossible for my car to go 340 kilometers an hour, no matter how much I might want it to. It can't do that.
1: I was going to ask. Uh, you remember? You mentioned that great story about uh, from Lesotho about uh, the bites inducing fatal laughter. Do you have a couple right. other examples right. that uh, that are some of your favorites?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's also a situation there. Um, so while I was there, there was a report on the radio. I mean, Lesotho is a pretty small country, and uh, all sorts of things make the news. But one of the things. So there's not many real. Uh, towns that have any, or that wasn't at the time, with modern facilities. So most life was still village life, and so it was all pretty uh, sort of rural and and sort of subsistence living. And so one of the occupations for young boys is to essentially um, herd sheep. So they're sort of shepherds. They're called herd boys there, but they basically take around their flocks of sheep and sort of look after them and while I was there there was a, um, a, a sort of account of a uh, uh, one of these herd boys I think about 10 years old who had drowned and um, he, he had been recovered from the, the, the pond he was in. Um, I think what he was doing at the time was to, to, st- to throw stones at ducks to try and sort of catch a duck to, uh, to sort of take home to eat. And he got tangled up, as far as I could work out, his legs sort of got tangled in the weeds and so on. He fell in and uh, he, he basically struggled and unfortunately he drowned. But the official explanation was that he had been essentially killed by the local large water snake. So all bodies of water of a reasonable size are guarded by a water snake. So I started asking questions. So was the body recovered? Yes, the body was recovered. So, was it damaged in any way? No, it wasn't damaged. So, well, why does the snake do this? What, what does it do? Is it just malicious? No, the snake basically feeds on brains. And so what it does, it had clamped its mouth over the boy's uh, mouth and nose and sucked his brains out through his nostrils. And so there was no sign of any damage. So this is all very odd, right? So, you know, Whoa, why, why, odd, do these yeah. Things, yeah, why do these things come about? So then I said, well, you know, why? why is it that, Nobody sees these things. Well, in fact, apparently, Africans do, but white people, Europeans, can't see this because the snake, when it sees a white person, would dematerialize be and become invisible. So, again, the real sort of thing goes back to basutos are not very fond of swimming. They sort of have a, a general fear of water. And so, again, keep your kids away from the water. What are you going to do? Well, there's the big snake in there that will come and get you if you go into the water. So I think a lot of these things get manufactured. So here's a fantastic beast with some rather odd behavior that, in fact, as far as one can tell, doesn't exist at all. But it's very real to these people and serves a very important social function.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, it's interesting you mentioned that because in my research of lake monsters, uh, in Canada and North America. Right. Many, many times you, you, you get that exact same thing where, where part of the story behind the lake monster is don't go in the lake because the, you know, champ or Ogopogo or whoever else would eat you. And yeah, so sort of yeah. oftentimes, exactly as you're saying, there's, there's, a, there tends to be this sort of boogeyman effect. Of the
0: right. Uh, I mean, if you've been, uh, I mean, I've been sort of fascinated recently by this, uh, this program that's been running on TV, River Monsters, uh, and just looking at the size of some of those freshwater fish. I mean, these are the sorts of things that people would generally not really give too much credence to existing. Like, you've got a 250 pound catfish, that's a pretty formidable animal. Right, that that's gonna if you see that and you don't know what it is, that's gonna be quickly turned into some monster uh, of of sort of unknown provenance that is alien, uh, because you really don't expect that sort of thing to be happening.
2: Yeah, I, I've caught 15 pound catfishes and thought they were pretty monstrous. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed uh, part of your research includes uh, the mechanisms of claw retraction in carnivores. Yes. Uh, do you ever see that sort of thing in movies and cringe because they got it all wrong or see films that really nail it?
0: Uh, I, I think, yeah, you often see things that that that, that are wrong, but I, I think a lot of times you see really the sort of things that are wrong by, I, I would say, you know, you, you certainly got some fanciful things, but you've got things that are in the wrong place, so the wrong things in the wrong place because it's a safety issue. So if you look at the way that snakes are used in movies, then a lot of times people will use snakes because you're using sort of essentially safe snakes. You're using boas and so on, but but basically conveying the idea that these things are venomous, but you want to protect the actors, I guess, if you want to have them acting with real things. Uh, so so there, are, there are things that, you know, people get wrong just because most people really don't know. Uh, and then you get, I think, sort of... I mean, I, I would say you get this wrong even in science. So I would say it's not just the movie. So going back to this gecko situation, there, there's, uh, I'll relate two instances here, one of which um, was sort of trivial, but the person who I pointed it out to was mortified. So I, I keep and uh, work with toke gecko. So these are pretty pugnacious animals, and um, there was a woman I met, I think it was actually in uh, in Georgia, who was at a, a, a scientific meeting that I was at, that was selling t-shirts, and uh, she kept geckos, and she had this uh, t-shirt of uh, a toque gecko, a big one, with all these nice raised patterns on it, and I, I wanted to buy one from her, but I said, I pointed out to her, I said, look, you know, here's there's a problem, not really a big deal, but you've got claws on all the toes, and the first toe, the, thumb, the equivalent of the thumb and the big toe, doesn't have a claw. And she, yes, it does. You know, I, I, this is my pet, and I've done this exactly from life. I said, well, you know, go back and take a look. And she went back and took a, took a look. And she was absolutely stunned that this was the case. So she'd never really noticed that. And there's a, there's a sort of mechanical reason why there isn't a claw on the first digit, but the claw on all the rest. So part of it is close observation. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here in my office, and I've got... Um, a rubber gecko, which is like a, a cast thing sold in toy shops and so on, made in China. It's a cast of a real animal, and it's got claws on all its digits. So the person who cast this basically pulled it out of the mold, and then, oh, the f- the claws must have pulled off. So I'll put them back on. But they were never there. Hmm. And in fact, th- this has actually happened in, uh, so so the first sort of paper, it was in the year 2000 that really reported on uh, these phenomenal powers that geckos had and had this um, measure of uh, how single adhesive hairs work by this very fancy mechanism of investigating the, the physical forces, showed a picture of a toke gecko on a glass surface, and it had claws on all the digits. So here's the magic of Photoshop. So somebody, a very uh, well-versed scientist, but not paying much attention, looking and seeing this picture, oh, this is damaged, I can't send it into the journal that way, so I'll Photoshop the claw back on. And now you say, okay, you really didn't look very carefully at these animals, <laughs> did you? Because it wasn't there in the first place. Wow. So so, so, so nature sometimes sort of fires these curveballs at us. And, and sometimes we're sort of duped by, by not looking as carefully as we should and assuming things and then finding out that they're not there. And, and it's, a, oh, yeah, really, I never really realized that. Yes, it's absolutely right once you point that out. But... I just thought that was just the way it was.
3: So, Dr. Russell, are there any research projects that you're working on currently that you'd like to tell us about?
0: Um, Yeah, so uh, basically I'm trying to... Use uh, Southern Africa, Namibia, as uh, as a field site for my investigations into uh, behaviour of of uh, geckos in the field, and so um, that's one of the things where we're continuing to investigate things like performance capabilities. But I think one of the things I'm doing in the lab at the moment, which I think is really uh, fascinating, is we're we're looking at you know which is which again can be seen to be a pretty um, I guess stunning behavioral reaction, which is the ability for lizards to throw their tail when they are under threat. So what we're looking at is how the tail is controlled in the absence of the animal to which it was once attached. So essentially, this little release device becomes a part of an organism that has a behavior pattern that is only released when it's detached from the animal so the the tail will never do what it does when it's released until it's released so there's an override system in the entire animal in the attacked animal that says you cannot behave this way but the instant the tail is released it does all sorts of things that are really fascinating so we're working with leopard geckos so and quite you know nice attractive uh, little geckos that when they throw their tail it does the thing that you expect it to do which is to thrash from one side to another in a rhythmic way uh, and so this would be under the operation of what is called a central pattern generator so one of the things that rules much of what we do is this wiring system in our nervous system that just tells us to do things automatically so when we walk we rely upon central pattern generators we don't have to think what to do with the next step the process is set in motion and it repeats breathing is is run by central pattern generators chewing is run by central pattern generators and so um when you see a a a snake or a lizard move the way in which the body is thrown into folds is run by a series of central pattern generators that tells muscles when to turn on when to turn off and how to coordinate those activities so the tail will move from side to side on the body. When it's released, it tends to move from side to side. It tends to do so more vigorously, but that's essentially the same pattern. But what the tail also does is to actually jump up in the air, ride around, do somersaults, all sorts of things that it cannot do when it's attached to the animal. And we've discovered by looking at the way that the muscles fire, which is the first uh, approach to this, is that it's actually sensing its own environment. It's responding to contact with its environment once it's released from the body and undergoing behavior patterns that are done in the absence of a brain. So here's a monster, essentially, this tail doing strange things um, in the absence of the owner. Uh, and, sorry, go ahead.
2: Well, I was just going to say, I, I actually, this is so interesting. I, I, I saw lizards do that all the time growing up. And never till this moment really gave it much thought. You know, I knew why it happened, and clearly it's a nice diversionary tactic of a bird's after right, you to throw right. down this writhing thing. But where does it get the energy to do that? Where, you know, where?
0: Is, no, is there- so so that that's what we're trying to investigate. So we're we're looking at this both 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 as an evolutionary model and also as a model that potentially has um, medical. Um, significance, because the energy, we we need to look at the actual structure of those muscles. So these animals, I mean, the the violent motions that take place really take place in the first uh, 90 seconds to two minutes after the tail has been shed. But that tail is still capable of movement half an hour after it's left contact with the body. So this can tell us all all sorts of things about fatigue, about um, uh, a certain a uh, set of ailments called ischemia, which happen to people where you get diminished blood supply. So w- what happens in that regard? So here's a natural preparation that is ischemic. It doesn't have any blood supply that has patterns of moving around that it is basically um, storing, presumably, oxygen supplies in its muscles to allow for these motions to take place in a coordinated way. So there's a lot of investment going on in that tail against this this moment when that tail has to be called into action to um, act as a decoy. And so, you know, what we think is happening here is that these tails are not just, you know, they're attractive, to visually oriented predators so you go after something and now the tail comes off and it's actually much more active than the thing that you were trying to catch and because you're a visually oriented predator you'll be attracted to that but if it's just lying there thrashing from side to side you can jump on that and get hold of it or essentially lose attention uh you know drop your attention on it because it's, it's not any longer intriguing. But if it's now behaving very erratically, your attention is going to be drawn to that and essentially give the owner a greater amount of time to escape and probably also avoid um, consumption itself. So there's a lot of ways of going with this, but it, it seems to be that it's a, a system that one can actually ask about all sorts of patterns of behavior that are not able to be, so So it, 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 we also think it has some applications ultimately for things like um, studies of paralysis because there's residual aspects of um, neurological function in people who are paralyzed, but we really can't prepare uh, investigative mechanisms for that because we have nothing that we can use that is not really traumatic so this is for the owner, for the lizard this is not traumatic, it will go away and grow another tail and the preparation then is sort of isolated and we can work on that without inducing trauma or stress on, on the owner that's now long gone
1: That's fascinating stuff. I, I think sometimes when I talk to people who are, who are really hardcore believers in, in Bigfoot or lake monsters, they, they almost seem to have this dissatisfaction with, with real animals in the real world. And, and I'm always just, you know, talking to you just, just made me think about it, that there's, there's so much fascination, you know, in the real actual biological world that we know without reaching for, for Bigfoot.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean I mean there there's you know I I mean when people run out of interest in in terms of how real animals are working and have to invent fantastic properties they really I think don't get how how amazing the living world is.
1: All right, well let me let me just ask uh what uh, what's your favorite monster? We like to ask all our guests what their right, favorite monster yeah, is. Do you good. do you have one? Surely you I do. I
0: do. I do. And and unfortunately because I'm a vertebrate biologist, it really isn't uh, a vertebrate. So I think my favorite monster, which is not really a monster, it's just that our perception, is the giant squid. And right? I just think that encapsulates so many things that have such a fantastic way of life. Um, It's elusive, it's sort of led us a song and dance for a long time, has these really fascinating interrelationships with things like sperm whales that we also don't really understand very much. So these are the sorts of things that if you didn't believe, if if we didn't know that giant squid existed, these would be really fantastic animals. Uh, I I mean, they do so many strange things and they live in such an alien way from the way that we imagine living that I think they're this archetype monster
2: that isn't a monster that's a great monster we love that one Uh, even growing up I thought I used to read books about cryptozoology and I thought that's the one that seems most plausible to me and uh, I'm I'm really excited that in my lifetime they've really gotten some great specimens and uh, yeah that's, that's mm-hmm. wonderful. Uh, yeah, Architeuthis is, is awesome. Yes, <laughs> right. Yeah,
0: you get just fabulous stuff, and just those, you know, things like with with uh, with those giant squid, just those rotating suckers and the whole thing. I mean, this is all just like alien stuff. If you didn't know that stuff existed, I think you'd have to invent that too. So, yeah. Uh, mm. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. Well, thank you for spending an hour with us talking science and monsters. We really appreciate it.
0: Okay. Well, I I appreciate it, too. Thank you very much for your interest, and uh, good luck with your uh, your endeavors. Mm
3: -hmm. Thank you. Monster Talk.
2: Thanks for joining us for Monster Talk. Monster Talk is sponsored by Skeptic Magazine. Today's guest was Dr. Tony Russell of the University of Calgary, and we were discussing ethnobiology, monsters, and geckos. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Dr. Karen Stolzno, Paranormal Investigator and host of Point of Inquiry, and Benjamin Radford, Paranormal Investigator and Managing Editor of Skeptical Inquirer, we join you each episode to discuss the science behind monsters. If you enjoy Monster Talk, please give us a review on iTunes. And if you want to talk to other Monster Talk listeners, please visit the Skeptic Forum at skeptic.com. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. The opinions expressed on Monster Talk do not necessarily reflect those of the Skeptic Society or Skeptic Magazine. Thanks for listening.
3: Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society?
0: Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. How
3: can you hear that, though? That sounds paranormal. (laughs) woo
2: That's my standard uh, paranormal sound. Uh woo